Good morning. So good to be here with you in the building and those of you at home. Um, I just need a minute to get situated. I'm so impressed by those who come up to preach with their little iPods. I'm still old school, always worrying that it's going to time out on me at a wrong moment or something. So here I go. Um, Will you pray with me before we begin? God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing of worshiping you, of hearing messages that children can receive, of being together as a community, close at hand and even far away. Lord, let your word change something in us today that we might be more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start today with some truths that are perhaps familiar. You've likely heard them before, even in some of the songs that we sang. But the implications that they have on our life are profound. God is a relational God. He placed himself in the Trinity, an intentional community of loving mutuality, respect, and humility. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each particular uniquely active in mission, yet resolutely one. Life on earth was meant to be patterned after this Trinitarian relationship. But we know the story, if you've grown up in the church, sin in the form of pride, stubbornness, and hard-heartedness came into the world. And since then, the attitudes of our heart The way we respond to God and each other have been marred. God's plan was disrupted. But not to be deterred, God sent his son to be Emmanuel, God with us, to show us how to live in the kingdom of God here on earth. He died that sin and death would no longer have the last word, and he rose again, filling us with the Holy Spirit that we may have the hope of new life. Joey talked about this tension of the already but not yet of this new creation last week. Today we'll be going back to Luke and noticing how responses, the responses we can have as not yet fully formed human beings can impact our relationship with God and ultimately each other. Jesus is on a journey toward Jerusalem and his acclaim and the conflict surrounding his mercy has intensified. On his journey towards the cross, Jesus teaches on the kingdom and the attitudes of the heart that reflect his image in the world, that create communities of wholeness. These attitudes of the heart are at the crux of relational health with God, others, and even ourselves. Life here and now is a journey with an overarching story of being transformed, fully representing Jesus as a new creation. That's the long view, and it's a slow journey. There's also a daily, along the way journey filled with the little moments that shape us over the long haul. It seems to me that it is our response to these along the way moments that reveal patterns of behavior that if we pay attention to them, have the potential to teach us more about ourselves and who and how God is calling us to be as we travel together. 
As I've been sitting in our text for today and thinking about all these things, I was reminded of a journey up a mountain that Richard and I took together when we were just beginning to date. Um, We were new to our dating relationship, just learning um, about each other and the kinds of things that we each like to do, seeing how our lives fit together. Um, Richard loves hiking and backpacking, and I had really no experience with either. And so I wanted to know if it was something that we could enjoy together. We both were curious about this. So Richard planned a hike to include a picnic lunch up in the San Gabriel Mountains because we both lived in Southern California at the time. And I had two objectives of this time together. One was to share with Richard my past, a past which was marked by abuse and isolation that only intensified as I got older. I met Richard several months after getting out from under my mom's abuse, and I was still learning to manage PTSD symptoms and and healing in general. And so I felt it was important to bring Richard into this part of my life. If we were going to have this relationship and let it develop, we needed to know each other. And so this was my first objective. My second objective was fairly straightforward. I wanted to get through the hike in a respectable way. So we were still on a flat piece of the trail, much like the trailhead to Strawberry Meadow where we were headed. And we'd been walking a while and I began to unfold my life story to Richard. He was kind and compassionate, offering affirming words um, that helped me see myself through his eyes, which was really a blessing and a gift to me. I felt a sense of relief and gratitude, and this relief gave way to the realization that, hey, we've been hiking a while on this path, and I'm rocking it, so I think I got got both these two objectives, boom, done. And then the switchbacks came into view, and I didn't know that word. Um, And so for those of you who don't know about switchbacks, they are a kinder, gentler way to climb a mountain. They go back and forth, getting you from the bottom to the top, rather than a straight ascent from bottom to top. It's supposed to be merciful, <laughs> but it didn't feel that way. Um, I was, it was higher elevation, I wasn't used to it, it was a lot more exertion, there was more to the hike than I thought there would be. And all those warm, fuzzy feelings that we had for each other on that straightaway began to die a slow and painful death. <laughs> as we kept going up this mountain. We just kept miscommunicating with each other. We were just missing it. And I had no, I have no um, doubt that the exertion and the unexpectedness of the journey was part of that. But by the time we reached the summit and descended into the meadow um, and found a rock to sit on so that we could have some lunch, that's the peak, (laughs) Um, so that we can have some uh, lunch together. Um, Like I said, we pulled up to a rock And I have since named it the Rock of Silence. Because by the time we got there, (laughs) the, the tension was palpable and the silence was deafening. So here's what you need to know about me. I really didn't want to talk to him in that moment. But I, it's also more painful for me to have relational conflict and not work through that than it was to be and stay mad. So I, I began to talk to Richard, and he, feeling the same way, began to talk to me. And we processed our communication and what went wrong, and we began to understand each other in new ways. 
And these patterns of going back to return to each other and checking in have really helped us along the way in our 25 years of marriage, even if we implement them imperfectly from time to time. I share this with you as an everyday example of how our responses, our fickleness, can drive our thoughts and emotions and impact our relationship with others. They can either move us toward or away. And it's why covenanters, it's why as we covenanters value personal, hold nothing back relationship with God and each other that is often expressed in answering, asking questions like, how goes your walk? Let's think about it. Let's reflect on it together. Our passage today highlights the importance of noticing the impact of our attitudes and responses. Let me give you a little bit of context about what's going on in Luke at this point. Jesus is beginning his final movement toward Jerusalem, his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. Even with this reality looming, Jesus travels the road encountering people who respond or don't to his teaching. As he nears Jerusalem, he Uh, weaves in and out of both Gentile and Jewish towns, skirting the borderlands of both worlds to be present, Emmanuel, God with them. And in the preceding chapters, he is giving several lessons on the attitudes of the heart, attitudes to be weary of, like love of money, greed, unforgiveness, and pride, as well as attitudes to cultivate, like trustworthiness, repentance, forgiveness, and humility. As Mel mentioned in Luke 17, our verse for today, we find Jesus crossing the border between a Galilean Jewish region and a Sumerian Gentile region. As a reminder, Jews considered Samaritans not part of the chosen people of God. They're considered half-breeds, less than, and pagans by Jews. Often the borderlands between these two regions were rough places to be avoided. There was mistrust and violence that occurred. Luke, more than any other gospel writer, talks about Jesus' interaction on these borders with the outsiders. In Luke, we get a glimpse that Jesus has come for all, Jews and Gentiles, saints and sinners alike. He highlights Jesus' willingness to go where faithful Jews would avoid, and our text is a prime example of this. Will you read with me, starting in verse 11? On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. So on this, in this colony, there are two realities as Jesus meets these lepers. The reality that Jesus is living and the reality that the lepers are living. And so I want to highlight those and then talk about the significance of this healing as it, re- as it reveals his nature and mission. Jesus, let's begin there, his reality is that he is headed to the cross. And I don't know, but it seems to me that this would be daunting perhaps even a little distracting, considering the pain and agony he was about to face. 
I imagine Jesus is feeling the intensity rise as he draws nearer with all the conflict that's going on about his ministry, yet he hears, sees, and responds to the lepers, to their cry for mercy. And in that, Jesus shows us what paying attention to life along the way looks like as we respond to the needs of others. The leper's reality was really pretty bleak. Leprosy included a variety of skin disorders that caused rotting flesh. It was very communicable, hard to treat, smelly, and led to a slow, painful death. And the disease carried social repercussions. In Leviticus 13, we read that when skin rashes break out on a person, they were to present themselves to the priest, who would examine them and declare them clean or unclean. Being declared unclean meant that you were, uh, your whole life was turned upside down. You could no longer worship, go to temple. You had to live outside the camp. You were quarantined together, as you see in this passage. And there was not much hope if you were a leper. If we turn back to Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus saying, reminding um, the Israelites that there was only one leper, his name was Naaman, that was healed in the time of the Old Testament. Leprosy included isolation, fear, pain, loss, and death. All hits to pride, ego, personhood, and status. All reasons for emotional, spiritual, and physical pain to be abundant in this colony. Any of this sounding familiar? There was tremendous fear around this disease and its spread. Their world had ceased to exist prior to getting COVID, or, <laughs> leprosy, and I think we can understand what it was like now that we have experienced COVID. And I wonder how each of us are finding ourselves more connected to the lepers than ever before. Over the past year, so many of us have cried out for mercy, that Jesus would make this stop, make things right, restore us, and take the fear out of living again, that we could see each other's faces, that we could gather, that we could hold and be held. We can resonate with the, letter, the lepers in their cry for mercy. It, was, it belayed immediacy. Please do something now. In their cry, they acknowledge Jesus as master, one who has authority to heal. And at their cries, he stops, looks, and heals. They got his attention. And maybe like you, me, you wonder why, given all that he's facing, did these lepers get his attention? And I think it's because Jesus understood the implications of this disease. He gave mercy because it was his nature to do so. It was the motivation of the mission he was on to love and restore all people to right relationship with God. And that includes body, heart, mind, emotions, and soul. I mentioned Jesus' words about the healing of the leper in Luke 4. There's a lot more to the passage in Luke 4 that I think connects to this story here and other passages in the New Testament. His comment about Naaman, the one leper healed, uh, he comes after Jesus has uh, unrolled the scroll in the temple and started reading from Isaiah. In this reading, Jesus declared his identity and his mission, and I want to read it for you now. 
Hear these words. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down, the eyes in the synagogue were all fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Prior to this time, all spoke well of him in the region. And then after he reveals his nature and his mission, his hometown audience starts to question his authority. And Jesus recognizes that a prophet is never welcome in his own hometown. And he follows this up with a stark truth of Israel's past to illuminate his point. He reminded them of the attitude, that this attitude in their hearts, it wasn't new. He reminds them of the widow of Sidon, a Gentile territory. We can find her story in 1 Kings 17. She, gave, she took Elijah in and gave him food during a drought. And he goes on to talk about Elisha's healing of Naaman in 2 Kings 5, a leader of an enemy army to Israel and the only healing of leprosy in the Old Testament. Both outsiders acknowledging God in pagan places and responding to God's initiative in their life. There were many widows and lepers in Israel during the time of the prophets, yet God sent them to outsiders. Jesus is saying there is a pattern. Pay attention, wake up, or you'll miss it. You'll miss me. Jesus is saying here, don't be complacent in your status as chosen. It was a bold statement to them about their hard-heartedness and refusal to accept Jesus not as a military Messiah that came only to liberate Israel, the chosen, but as a suffering servant Messiah who came to heal all nations. He has come to heal, set free, bring good news of the coming kingdom to pronounce the year of the Lord's favor, not just to Israel, but for all. I believe pride and ingratitude were at the heart of his hometown's rejection. And I believe it often can be for us too. These two attitudes of the heart will be recurring things that play out in our text as we move forward. And I wonder if we can see ourselves in the same complacency, pride, and an ingratitude that can plague all of God's chosen people. Jesus heals the ten lepers. And it reveals his nature because regardless of the danger he is in, he is committed to the prophetic word spoken of him in Isaiah and repeated in chapter 4 of Luke. This healing was a new day that the Lord has made in the lives of these lepers. All the lepers in the story were physically healed and this impacted their whole life, physical, emotional, mental, relational. Jesus goes to the least, to the lost, the sick, the outcast, the outsider, where every other person fails to go often, and he gives mercy. He still does this today. He heals bodies and emotions. Are there unhealed areas of your life that you have yet to ask Jesus to enter with his compassion and mercy? He will go there if you tell him about it. 
He will meet you, and he will provide what is needed, just as he did for these lepers. He gave the healing, but he also respected the Jewish law by sending them to the priest. Jesus knew they would be healed, but he also wanted to make a way for them to be fully restored to their community, and this was the process. They went in faith and were healed on the way. It's a testament to us. Ask for his mercy and walk in faith, even faith as small as a mustard seed, even with the breath prayer, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. He heals in response to faith. We see that often in the Gospels, but faith is a gift of grace. We can't manufacture enough of it on our own to make God respond. No, God wants to respond. He wants to increase our faith. It's given. It's a gift of grace. And faith is really trust that God, trusting that God is God, and he is bigger than anything we face. So keep your eyes on him. That is faith. Well, there's more to the story that's worthy of our attention, so let's return to Luke 17, 15 to 16. Read with me. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Ten men walked away in faith and were healed, made clean, but only one turned back to Jesus. The nine, many commentators believe they were Jews, kept going. The text says that one saw that he was healed. He noticed. Did the others not notice? Did they just take it for granted? If they noticed in any way the changes in their bodies, they must have been filled with relief at the least. I would hope gratitude and awe. But they kept going. And in some ways, I get it. They were given instructions to go to the temple so they could be pronounced clean. They were eager to return to their families, work, community, to go home. Yet going home without noticing and turning back belied their focus on themselves rather than the one who, gave, who made them whole. Only one turned back toward Jesus in worship. He prostrated himself before the master, gratitude overflowing, gratitude overflowing. He could not stay quiet. He gave thanks with his whole being, and he was a Samaritan who also needed to present himself to the priest, who also needed to give sacrifice of worship, who also was eager to go home and be restored to community. He was a Samaritan, an outsider, hated by Jews, just like the widow of Sidon and Naaman and so many others mentioned in the Gospels and Epistles. The outsiders were receptive and responsive to God's work in their life, so different from those of Jesus' own community. My guess is that the Samaritan in Luke 17 felt the depths of social isolation, hatred, and marginalization long before the leprosy took hold. Leprosy leveled the playing field, but it didn't take away the animosity that he faced. Likely, the heart attitude of the other nine may have been something like, well, I may have leprosy, but at least I'm a Jew and not a Samaritan. 
Perhaps their ingratitude and focus on themselves has, has been a long-standing pattern, only amplified as they judge others' worth. Attitudes of the heart get entrenched when ignored, when not reflected upon, and that leaves little room to see the new thing that God is up to. This Samaritan was the least, last, and lost, according to the Jews, and I think that impacted his whole self-response to healing. Perhaps it impacted his response in ways the others were not able to connect with in relying on their chosen status. When you experience hatred, isolation, scorn, disease, you get grace on a whole new level. When you are finally seen, loved, and restored, you can't help but fall on your knees and worship. We have a lot to learn from people who suffer on the margins about acceptance and response to God's grace, about the mingling of joy and suffering and the depths of gratitude for God's deliverance. The Samaritan turns toward, draws near, and worships Jesus. He gives thanks, and the word in the text is Eucharisteo, the same word Jesus uses at the Last Supper. Eucharisteo means thanksgiving. That was what Jesus did at the Last Supper. He gave thanks to God for creation, life, restoration, even suffering as it does its work. This is the sacrifice of thanks the Samaritan offered Jesus for his new life. And in doing so, the Samaritan has an encounter with Jesus filled with joy and gratitude, forging a relational connection that will ever change his life in deeper ways than just the physical healing alone ever could. He came right up to Jesus. There's no more standing far off. He bows down in gratitude and acknowledged Jesus, not just master this time, but as Lord and God in the flesh. It is a face-to-face -face encounter where no doubt his attachment to Jesus as Lord was solidified. And how does Jesus respond? Let's look at the last couple of verses in our text. Then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean, but the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, get up and go, your faith on your way, your faith has made you well. The Samaritan freely gave thanks and Jesus re received it, but Jesus asked some questions. Questions help us reflect both personally and collectively, and Jesus, being the good teacher that he is, knows this. In his, in his commentary on Luke, Daryl Bach highlights the meaning of these three questions. As Bach notes, question one, we're not ten healed, is meant to make us notice what is missing. Only one came back. Bach notes that question two, where are the other nine? It actually reads in the original text, the nine, where? The word where trails off at the end of the sentence in an emphatic way. Jesus is commenting on the ingratitude of the nine. Their hearts were not toward the giver, but the gift, focused on self. Gratitude wasn't demanded for this miracle to happen, but it was proper. It is right and proper to give glory to God for his marvelous deeds. Psalm 30 in the message reads, I give you all the credit, God. You got me out of that mess. You didn't let foes gloat. God, my God, I yelled for help, and you put me together. 
God, you pulled me out of the grave, gave me another chance when I was down and out. All you saints, sing your hearts out to God. Thank him to his face. Faithful Jews knew the Hebrew scriptures. They knew the importance of praise and worship to God. Praise is the right response to God's mercy. And there is always time to turn toward God and let his face shine upon you as you offer thanks and praise. Where are they, Jesus says. Our response to God, to human relationships, provide us an opportunity to pay attention, to self-reflect and turn toward God, asking for the grace to be more like him. The nine failed to pay attention, to look up and to focus on Jesus in gratitude. How about you? Is gratitude a regular part of your life? Do you make time to be face-to-face with Jesus in prayer, grateful for all he has done? I'm not always good at this. Lord, help. (laughs) The third question, was none of them, the Jewish men, found to give praise except this foreigner? And the word foreigner really indicates pagan, heathen. It was the same word used for the Samaritan. It was the same word that he used for the Samaritan as the word that is carved into a sign that hangs in the temple, prohibiting foreigners from entering through the inner barrier. Left out as he was, this heathen praised Jesus with all he had. We are the church, and sometimes we may be guilty of being just as complacent with our gratitude as these lepers. Jesus, or the Samaritan, is a reminder to us to turn toward God in gratitude with shouts and joy and to prostrate ourselves with a humble heart, to throw off complacency. And I wonder what in your life compels you to that kind of gratitude? Is it God? Is it noticing the things that he's doing in your life, in the lives of others? Turn toward Jesus and offer thanks And while you're there, listen. He will speak words of encouragement to us today, just as he did to this Samaritan. Jesus ends his time with this healed Samaritan with a word of commendation. He says, get up. It's the same root word used for the resurrection. Rise up, go and live fully into your new life. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. He was already physically healed, but that face-to-face connection with Jesus liberated him fully, body and soul. He turned toward Jesus with praise and thanksgiving. The others had faith that Jesus could heal, but they didn't respond. Only the Samaritans responded, and he received a personal word of encouragement and connection from Jesus. Rise. Well done. Get up. Go. Your faith has made you well. I encourage you to open yourself in your prayer life to Jesus' encouraging words. He still gives them today. So here's what's true. Along the way, life throws lots of opportunities for us to respond to God and others in relationship. It's really this life of ours, a training ground for learning to be more like Jesus, if we're willing to pay attention and look toward God and each other in community for help. So here's my word to you. Pay attention to your life. 
Note your circumstances, how you respond to them, as well as the thoughts and attitudes that mark your interactions. When you notice patterns of thoughts and attitudes contrary to the kingdom, ask for mercy, healing, and grace to begin again. Walk in faith that the Holy Spirit is working because I can tell you the Holy Spirit is far more committed to your transformation than even you are. He will not leave you alone if you open yourself, and whether you do or not, he's there. Ask for the grace to see God at work in your life. Ask a friend to point it out. Sometimes it's really hard to see where we're growing. Notice your response to his work or your perception of his absence and turn back toward God. Never fail to give thanks. It will put you face to face with Jesus Will you will rise up in life, joy and greater wholeness. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Soften our hearts, mold us, make us new. Help us rise up in resurrection life as your people as we take on more and more of who you are. Help us pay attention to the ways we miss the mark and begin again. Thank you for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.